0: You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. Let's return now to a continuing session from the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Robert Hasty on the subject of advancements in stroke prevention. The next topic is something I think that probably most of you use this on a fairly recent or frequent basis, and this is the CHADS2 score. And if you're not using it, you should. It's easy. And the CHADS2 score is basically a prediction of stroke risk in patients with atrial fibrillation. The C stands for congestive heart failure, and that's an ejection fraction greater than 35%. H stands for hypertension. That's even if they're normal normal intensive on their blood pressure medications. A stands for age greater than or equal to 75. The D stands for diabetes. And the S is stroke or a TIA. And that actually gets two points. So if they've ever had a stroke or ever had a TIA, they get two points for that one. So if you do the math, you know, there's, what, five letters plus an extra point for that. The maximum points they can get is six. So this is out of a six-point scale. Um, This is the breakdown of stroke risk in patients with CHADS2. And you can see, going to the top, if you have zero, and these are the patients that we're only going to treat with aspirin. We don't treat these patients with warfarin anymore. If they have zero CHADS2, they have a 1.2% risk of having a stroke uh, per 100 patients per year. And they are considered low risk. Once you go above that, their risk of stroke significantly increases. And if you have six points, that's a 44% chance of having a stroke in one year. Huge increase. But we actually call it high risk if it's chads two, three, or higher. And um, and part of the way, you know, part of the reason why we don't give warfarin anymore to that uh, CHADS2 of zero is it's 1.2%. You know, what's the risk of major hemorrhage if they're in an anticoagulant in the first per year? It's about that, right? That's the reason why we don't give warfarin to patients with a zero CHADS2 score. Everybody else, you know, should get either warfarin, and we'll talk about some of the novel anticoagulants. Uh, By the way, I know statistically that 80% of the people in this room have smartphones. I know that because there's published data that 80% of attending physicians in the United States have smartphones. You know, 100%, we have 55 trainees in our residency residency and fellowship programs. Every single one of them has a smartphone. So people ask, you know, how to use, you know, these devices to improve patient care. And I can tell you this is a real easy one. It's called MedEquations. I can tell you, I've looked at every single application out there for medical equations, and this is the best. And I'm a connoisseur of these applications. The only problem is it costs $4.99, but it's available on every platform. And the reason why I bring this up, you know, when you look down at some of these great published scoring systems that we have, such as the CHADS2. I can pull this up. I can give you a CHADS2 score in, like, 15 seconds. I can give you the, the annual stroke risk. It's just going to pop up on the screen for me. I can click on more info, get the evidence-based reference. It's going to link me back to actually give me the original article. It's called Meta Equations. So that's the CHADS2, and we use that to determine their risk, chance of uh, stroke risk per year. And it's a really important risk factor. And, and by the way, You know, I had a patient in my office a couple months ago. You know, he had a CHADS2 score of 2. And it was 3.6% chance per year of having a stroke. Well, this guy happens to go the the racetrack, and he spends a lot of time at the racetrack gambling. And he bets on, I guess, this trifecta. So he, he came in with this atrial fibrillation. I said, you need to be on anticoagulants. And, uh... And, you know, because of insurance and things like that, you know, Warfarin was the appropriate one for him because he just couldn't afford the novel anticoagulants. And so I said, you need to take the Warfarin. And, you know, of course, he says, I'm not taking that rat poison stuff, right? And I said, no, you need to. And he said, well, what's my chance of when you're having a stroke? And I said, it's 3.6% chance. And he says, Doc, he says, if I can go to the track and win 96.4% of the time, you know, I'd be the richest man in South Florida. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, you win, you know, the trifecta. That's great. But if you lose the trifecta, what you lose like two bucks or however much money you lose on that, you lose this horse race. Yeah, you know, you're in the nursing home like this, you know, or you're buried. I, I tell I tell him that you're in the nursing home like this, you know, with someone changing him because that seems to be a little scarier to to the average patient. You know what he did? He's taking his warfarin. So. All right. So, the, the next. Topic I really want to focus on is the atria study. And this is something relatively new. It came out of uh, the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2011. And this is probably the best thing that's ever been looked at to predict a patient's risk from bleeding. It's the best study ever uh, for the risk of patients bleeding. And so the atria hemorrhage risk score uh, is as follows it's a fairly easy score to get at. So you have anemia that gets you three points. If they have any anemia, I don't care if it's pernicious anemia, it's iron deficiency anemia, if they have anemia, they get those three points. They have renal disease, any type of CKD, ESRD, three points. They have an age greater than 75, they get two points. They get prior bleeding, that's one point. Hypertension, one point. And if they're low risk, that's that's if they have 0 to 3 uh, points. They're called intermediate risk if they have 4 points, and they're in the high-risk group if they're 5 to 10 points. And we do this to predict the chance of them bleeding if they're on anticoagulants. And here's the breakdown. Um, this looks at low-risk group gets less than 1% chance of bleeding uh, annually. If they have intermediate uh, risk group, 2.62, and if they're in the high-risk group, 576 percent chance of bleeding and i actually have been using this with the chads too and you can kind of see the risk benefits fairly easy so to me i mean i understand that you know many patients that that are 90 years old should be on warfarin i get that i mean i know the evidence but i also not know not every single 90 year old patient with atrial fibrillation should be getting anticoagulants and to just go from a a anecdotal way of uh, trying to assess which patient's should be on anticoagulants versus doing an experimental study-controlled, you know, good way of telling which patients should be on anticoagulants, I think atria score is the way to go. Um, Interesting enough, they actually suggest against uh, using these prediction uh, clinical tools. And you know what? I'm actually okay. I mean, it only gets a 2C recommendation, but you know what? In my practice, I'm still going to use it especially when I'm trying to figure out good ideas what to do with my elderly patient that I, I don't probably think that should be on anticoagulants. So again, I want to reemphasize the fact that if you have zero CHADS2 score, the current guideline recommendations say no anticoagulants. In fact, they actually say no therapy rather than anti-thrombotic therapy, um, which is a little tougher to do with, you know, no aspirin, etc. cetera. Uh, but, you know, strange, strangely enough, that's what it's currently recommending. So next, I'm going to talk to you about vitamin K antagonists. I'm going to preface this. You know, I remember when I was medical school. I graduated from medical school 12 years ago. When I graduated medical school, I was a fourth-year medical student doing a rotation in South Florida. Uh, this very, very wise clinician uh, was precepting me, a family doc. He says, you know, in your lifetime, he says, I'll even do better than that. He says, in, in 20 years from now, you will not be prescribing rat poison, that's what he said, to your patients with atrial fibrillation or for any condition. He said, rat poison is going to be gone in 20 years. We'll never prescribe it. As much as I love the guy and I respect him, I don't think that's the case. I think eight years from now, I think we're still going to be having some patients on Warfarin or vitamin K antagonists, I should say. And it's going to be here with us for another while. Even though we have all these new anticoagulants coming on market, you know, it's going to be a while before we have the indication for all the different conditions that you're going to put patients on warfarin for. And plus, these medications are going to be expensive for a long time. I mean, anywhere from 160 bucks to 230 bucks a month for the average anticoagulant. You know, I have a little bit of disposable income. If I had atrial fibrillation, I'd probably be taking one of those drugs and paying the extra, you know, a couple grand a year, maybe. But, um, But I can tell you... Our average patient, especially trying to reduce costs for our system, you know, I'm not sure if uh, the evidence is there. I think we're going to be treating our patients with warfarin uh, for a number of years. I'll k- tell you a quick story. One of our cardiology fellows, he had a patient uh, recently who um, came in, and he was taking a very detailed history in this patient. He said, he says, sir, how... What are you doing to manage your atrial fibrillation or your regular heartbeat? And the guy says, Doc, don't worry, I got that. He says, I know about that rat poison that you guys try to prescribe me. He says, I'm saving trips to the pharmacy and, and cutting down costs. He says, what do you mean? He says, I go out. He says, I got a box of decon granules. And I take a toothpick and take one decon granule each day. And so, you know, Joe's you know, jaw dropped, and he says you're kidding me. And he said, no. He says, well, how do you know when you're not getting in, or you're getting too much? He says, well, I brush my teeth each day. I guess he only brushes his teeth one time a day. He says, when I brush my teeth in the morning, and if it bleeds, I don't take a decon granule that day. <laughs> but, if, uh, but if it doesn't bleed, then I'll go ahead and take it. So I said, I said, so I said Joe, I said, what was the patient's INR? 2.5. So yeah. I, so I'm not suggesting that you uh recommend this for your patients that does not get any guideline recommendation. In fact, I'd I'd probably discourage that uh that practice, but uh uh I thought it was kind of interesting. So. But of course, you know, these are part of the reasons why we dislike Warfarin, even though we have to prescribe it, and many times it's a wonderful medication for our, medi- our patients, and it saves lives, and this medication's been around for 60 years, and you know we know the origins of this medication. This is part of the reason why we really don't like to use it. It has such a wide range of dosage. You, know, you can have a patient that only takes 2 milligrams a week and, and, and becomes therapeutic, versus 112 milligrams per week and becomes therapeutic. I mean, that's the challenge of this medication. Plus, like You know, the vitamin K-containing foods, it's really tough for patients to figure out how much vitamin K, and if you have, like, a salad eater their whole life, it's kind of tough to, you know, get them on the right thing. And almost every medication affects warfarin, right? It's like the longest list of, it's like the who's who of medications in the world. Even Tylenol is on this list of medications that affects uh, warfarin, or INR, I should say. So it's really, really a, a tricky medication. I think most of us would if we had our drithers, you know, get, would get rid of this medication. And this is the published literature. This one came out about 12 years ago. And it actually looks at the adequacy of patients with atrial fibrillation in primary care practice. And, you know, even though it's, it's a 12-year-old study, I wouldn't make the argument that things probably haven't changed that much over the last 12 years. Am I right? You know, look... You took looked at patients with AFib and primary care practices, you know, 65% are not on warfarin. And some of them for very good reasons, right? You know, they have contraindications, et cetera. But that's like two-thirds. And you look at patients with their INR above target, that's 6%. You know, super thera- or sub-therapeutic INR, 13%. And patients that actually have an INR that's in the therapeutic range, 15%. I mean, that's pretty amazing. You, know, you have all those patients at risk high risk of strokes. And it always scares me, like you know, all these patients, uh, you know, walking around with their INR above uh, therapeutic range, and it seems like they always want to go out on top of the roofs and hammer, and, you know, especially right after the hurricane, and you know, we, we see all sorts of uh, challenges with that. But this is probably one of the newest recommendations that shocks me the most. You know, for years we have been practicing under the recommendations from the guidelines that says do not allow your patients to go more than four weeks without an INR check, right? We've all been doing that. In fact, I don't give refills to my patients for more than a month because this way I can ensure that they come back for at least the medication. You know, I might give them a few days until they get back in the office, but I'm, like, stringent about that. But the new recommendation says you can wait up to 12 weeks for patients taking Warfarin. If they have a consistently stable INRs, and they, they say rather than do every four weeks, you can do every 12 weeks. That's so three months. If they have a stable INR, you can go. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, personally, I think in my practice, I mean, I don't really have anybody that's that stable with their INR. I mean, I have a few patients, but, you know, not a lot. I don't know. I I think this one's going to be a tough one for me to do personally. But anyway, that's the official recommendation. Um, The other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of interest of doing the pharmacogenetic testing. You know, this is the VKORC and the CYP3A4 testing. You know, these little genetic kits. And the sales rep comes around and they say, you know, you want to use this because you can take, you know, send it off ahead of time, uh, and you can determine how much warfarin the patient's going to be on uh, or need to take based upon, you know, the published data in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, et cetera. And it really is kind of interesting how you can predict how much warfarin the patient most likely will need. But the official recommendation is to recommend against the routine use of pharmacogenetic testing for do- guiding dosing, and there's problems with actually using this testing kits, right? You know, because it takes a couple of days, and you already have them on their 10 milligrams of uh, Warfarin or 5 milligrams if they're age 65 and older, and you're waiting for them to, uh, to become therapeutic, and then all of a sudden, you know, they take a lot more vitamin K than a person with their genes, and, you know, it's all population-based, so I'm, like, less enthusiastic about it, and of course, the public uh, guidelines from the, the CHESS guidelines suggest that we don't use them at all. So... So something to think about. Now, this is a, a scenario I think everybody in this room comes into on a daily basis, right? And if you have a patient taking Warfarin and they previously are stable uh, with their INRs, you know, your goal is like 2 to 3 and they're like oh, almost always 2 to 3 and usually they're 2 to 3. If it follows like 0.5 outside of range, just continue the current dosing and test the INR within one or two weeks, isn't that interesting? So you're not changing the dosing. You're actually continuing the same dosing and recheck it one or two weeks. See, that's a tough one for me. Like, somebody comes in, you know, they have an INR of 1.5, even if they're normally stable, or if they have the INR of 3.5, it's tough for me not to monkey around with the, with the INR or with the, the warfarin dosing. Um, but the official recommendation from 2012 CHEST is to keep them on the same dose and recheck them in a week or two. And it is, there is data to support this practice. The other recommendation, which is uh, relatively uh, new, um, is to use nomograms. I think most of us have, like, had those painful things about nomograms in the past, and, you know, I've been in some offices before, they have some, you know, nomogram up on the wall next to the medical assistant, you know, how they're dosing the, the warfarin. Um, but you know, the, the evidence suggests that they really do improve uh, patients' outcome when you're looking at trying to get folks into the therapeutic INR ranges. Um, by the way, you know, again, you know, people love apps nowadays. Uh, this is one I would suggest. It's a, it's a free one. It doesn't cost a penny. It's called Warfarin Guide. Um, you can download that one uh, for your, your smartphone device. And, and by the way, these things are available on all these platforms, Android, uh, iPhone, whatever, iPad. Now let's talk about self-management of Warfarin. You know, that's one that, you know, people are a little scary about, and of course, you know, when we talk about you doing this, it's analogous to 30 years ago or 40 years ago when we were first tar- talking about using a glucometer to check your sugar, right? You know, before then, before the invention of the glucometer in the 70s, you know, patients would really test with the, you know, the urinary dipstick, and, you know, people said, oh, you're going to turn the uh, patient into a doctor. And so, of course, you know, we have a lot of these, these products that are out there on the market. This is called the Check machine. It's, you know... You know, actually, I, I put this picture up because that's the one I have in my practice. And you know, they actually give it to you for free. It's like the razor blade thing. I think I bought thirteen hundred bucks worth of uh, worth of strips. They're like five, uh, five bucks each, and I bought you know, thirteen hundred bucks, and they gave me this quaggy check machine for free. But I always love the advertisements. The I- advertisements always have a therapeutic INR, right? You know, they should put on the box. You know, your results may vary, right? You know, but it's always a therapeutic INR in the ads. But this is. One of my favorite studies looking at self-management of oral anticoagulation, and I point you down to 1.6 versus 4.1 percentage. 1.6 chance of death is when the patient's doing the self-management at home. The 4.1 percent is when we're doing it. And this was statistically significant, right? I don't know. I think there may be something there. You know, randomized controlled trials actually showing, or or I guess it wasn't controlled, but randomized trials showing that patients die less when they're managing their, their INR with our supervision. You know, probably not such a bad thing to do. And of course, the guidelines actually suggest for, you know, appropriate patients. Uh, to do it. You know, just like the patients with diabetes. You know, if they get type 1 or even type 2, you know, you're gonna, not going to turn them loose with a pump if they don't know how to uh, operate an electrical electronic device, right? And, you know, you're going to use a lot of judgment about who you put on the pump. Same thing is true with this. And by the way, um, Medicare you know, pays for it with va- patients with valves and some of the insurances I've been uh, getting fairly lucky with locally. You know, they'll pay for it as opposed to paying all the expenses of uh, having come see me for uh, their INR checks. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Browns Nation after this short break.